Hello, my name is Matthew Kidman, and welcome to the latest episode of Success and More Interesting Stuff, brought to you by Livewire Markets. The Isle of Rahn journey is a classic Australian success story. Born in Stockholm to Estonian parents, Rahn and his family moved to Australia when he was five years old. They put down their roots in the quiet New South Wales country town of Thilmen. A smart student, he went on to study economics at the University of Sydney. Taking a job at the old giant Esso, Ram was restless and decided to apply for a position as a stockbroking analyst at Ordmanet. He got the job, but knew very little about financial markets. He was quick to latch on though. He rounded out his experience by moving to London, working for Robert Fleming on the buy side. In 1975, he answered a call from his old colleague from Ordmanet, Chris Corrigan. Corrigan had been put in charge of a joint venture between Ords and Bankers Trust Australia. He was ambitious and saw an opportunity to grow a funds management business, taking on the sleepy Australian institutions and thought Rahm was the ideal person to take on the task. From 1978 through to 1987, Rahm ran Pendle, the institutional business within BT. He punched out highly impressive numbers, attracting billions of dollars under management. He and his colleagues carved their names in financial markets folklore when in 1987, they sniffed the exuberant wind whistling through global markets and took protection. A combination of put options and futures selling saw BT breeze through the 87 crash while others crumbled. From this moment, BT was the main game in town. Billions flowed into the coffers and it was the number one place to work in Australia. Barnes stayed in a key role until BT Australia was sold to the principal group for 2.1 billion in 1999. Welcome Olive, quite a career. Well, thank you, Matthew. Um, yes, a long time there and um, pretty successful for a while and then, you know, dwindled off at the end, I guess you could say. It was a big number, though, that 2.1 billion. Well, that was ridiculous. That's ridic- a lot of value creation. That was ridiculous price. I mean, we were just staggered when we saw that. And it, you know, obviously proved latterly to, um, to have just been way, way overpriced. And was that a sad way to end? Because we saw BT... BT in the US go broke or, or hit financial hardship. Deutsche Bank came in and then there was asset sales in Australia and BT here ended up with the principal group. Was that, was that a bit sad given what had been built over all those decades? I think so, yeah. Um, certainly I was a bit sad about it. I exited when principal bought BT because I thought we had a good new owner, you know, stability and so on, but... It really proved in the early 90s, especially after the uh, tech boom became the uh, tech wreck, that uh, that wasn't sustainable. Yeah, well, that's what happens when you pay too much and eventually it catches up to you. Now, let's go back to those early days. Mm -hmm. Born in Stockholm to Estonian parents. Um, What what took them from, was was it the war, the Second World War, where they were displaced and ended up in Stockholm? Uh, Very much so. The Russians were coming back against the German invasion and Estonia was was caught in the middle and my parents decided that they should try to get out. So they got on a... It was a barge, overloaded, and there was a storm. It was in the Baltic Sea. In, In the Baltic Sea, and I think it was, you know, capsizing and they were lucky that they were picked up by the Swedish Coast Guard. Oh, right. Did they know where they were heading before that? Yes, yes. They were definitely heading towards Sweden. 
Right. Yes. And the, lucky that the Swedes were around to pick them up. Exactly, and they were very welcoming. Oh, that's, uh, that's good. And yeah. do you remember anything? I mean, you're only five when you came to Australia. Yes. Any uh, faint memories of, of Sweden and Stockholm? Yes, uh, I have some pleasant memories. I remember um, going picking berries and um, you know mushrooms with my mother. I remember I had a pet hedgehog, <laughs> which appeared out of the forest, and I used to feed it milk. You know, and I do remember um, going with my father on the weekends into Stockholm city, and I remember, for instance, we'd eat hot dogs and. He'd place me astride the brass lions outside of the royal palace. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, there are very pleasant memories, actually. Uh, And you decided to move, or they decided to move, all the way around the other side of the world. Post-war, it's around 1950, there's there's a recovery going on in Europe. What what do you think they were thinking and go to all, right around the other side of the world to a foreign country where they probably don't speak the language? I think they just had the view that uh, they wanted to go to the new world rather than be in the old world. And so I think the choices were probably Canada, the US, Australia, and they decided on Australia. And uh, they got an assisted passage and um, then settled in Yathalmir, as you mentioned earlier, really by hand, uh, you know, knocked over the bush and built a poultry farm. In Thelmy? In Thelmy. J- just outside the township? Yes. And what, what was the attraction to Thelmy? Was there an Estonian community or there was someone they knew, family members? There was a small Estonian community that then burgeoned and um, so they felt much more at home in that environment and then... I went to school at Picton and, uh, and then high school at Picton High, which was a very good education, I've got to say, compared to probably uh, to the you know, public education system nowadays, uh, and then won a, a Commonwealth scholarship and went to Sydney University. So you're obviously pretty good at school to win that scholarship, and, and it was good school. You are telling me earlier that mm. very fond memories and good teachers. But, but what your parents, they became poultry farmers. Yes, they were poultry farmers. The farm itself didn't make an enormous amount of money, I think. So my dad actually uh, also worked in the mines, in the you know, coal mines. You know, Around nearby. that Appen area? Uh, well, Oakdale and places like that. Did he have to change a lot? Like, what was he doing in Estonia? What was oh, he, he was an accountant. Uh, the family had a uh, textile business. Uh, he was an accountant in that business, so, you know, going out to Thelmere and building a poultry farm and going Quite coal far. mining was completely different from what he was, you know, uh, what his earlier life was. And yeah. do you think that that affected so it was, him? It was a tough life. Tough life for him yeah. and yeah. your mother? Yes. Do you think that affected them? Well, he died reasonably early. Uh, my mother... Uh, not so. She lived into her 80s. But, you know, coming to Australia, as you say, a new land, completely different culture and so on, and then, you know, having to really strive to uh, make ends meet was was a tough gig, yes. 
But it sounded like for you as a, as a child, it was a pretty nice life. Yes, it was. Um, you know, I was brought up on a farm. Uh, I used to cycle everywhere. Uh, I used to go, you know, bush bashing and, you know, it, it, was, it was a very nice upbringing really uh, for me. And what got you interested in economics? You say you've got that scholarship. Mm. Was that to study economics specifically? At high school, I in the leaving certificate, I actually did first class honours and got them. So I had, you know, some inclination towards economics. And so when I looked at what degree I might take, uh, I decided on an economics degree with an accounting major. And that worked very well for me, as it turned out. And you took to the subject of economics naturally? A lot of people get lost in all the terminology when you're at school. Yes, I preferred macroeconomics to micro, you know, the bigger picture. And that's where, I guess, once we got into funds management, you know, we also flourished. And you were, while you're at uni, you were travelling from Thelma every day or, or did you leave home? No, I, I flattered in, in Sydney for most of the week and then used to go home most weekends. And were they the, the hip 60s or was it was a little bit more sedate in Australia at that stage? Well, it was pretty sedate and then I think as the 60s rolled on, it became more like the swinging 60s. And certainly by the time that I got to London, it was very much the swinging 60s there you know, in you know, Chelsea and so on, yeah. Now, you, at the end of it, you take a job at ESSO. At the end of your degree, you take the job at ESSO. But then you got a bit lucky, as you put it, where one of your old lecturers from uni gave you a call and recommended that you, that you apply for a job at a stockbroking house, which was Old Minette. How did that come about? Well... ESSO was a great disappointment. There was, it was supposed to be a you know, cadetship where you learn and really they didn't have any structure in place for graduates to come in and learn anything. So I was doing some basic bookkeeping sort of stuff and so on. Very boring. <laughs> I was only there for probably a couple of months and then uh, one of my old lecturers uh, called me up out of the blue and said, I've got a partner in a stockbroking firm who's looking for a you know, trainee analyst. Would you be interested? Well, I knew nothing whatsoever about markets and so on. In fact, those days, of course, stockbroking was very much uh, my word is my bond. It was an old boy network. The Financial Review, I think, only started coming out daily, I think, sometime in the mid-60s, just to give you an idea. So... You know, the, the sort of financial markets really weren't uh, very evident in people's lives. And your first day at Audmanet was the day that Australia switched to the Australian dollar? Yes, it was um, the 14th of February 1966. I remember going up in the lift with all these uh, people in fancy suits and things and looking at myself thinking I'm, I look pretty shabby. <laughs> Uh, but to be honest, once I got into it, uh, it was fantastic. Uh, it was one of the f very few uh, stockbroking firms that did have a research department. There were four or five people in it. Two of them pretty quickly left to do MBAs after I joined. And 
the basic product that I was producing were called the XYZ sheets. So the X sheet was a five-year summary of the balance sheet and ratios. The Y sheet was a similar analysis of the P&L statement and cash flows and earnings per share series. And then the Y sheet uh, was a description of the company, evaluation, you know, PEs and things like that, and some you know, commentary on the likely prospects of the company. And that would be handed to the dealing desk who would then sell it, or did you go and see clients directly? The clients really had folders, and we sent them out when we produced them, and they would throw out the old sheets and put in the new sheets, (laughs) we hoped. Uh, But looking back on it and talking to people who were clients, they were held in quite a lot of esteem, it sounds like something we could reintroduce, the XYZ method That's of right. research. Sounds, sounds pretty methodical and, and the yeah, covers, well, it, well, it covers was a great, the fundamentals. It was a great training ground for me and for the other junior analysts as they came in. Usually they were graduates. In fact, one of the next graduates was actually Chris Corrigan. So came I would, to play a big role in your life. Exactly. And... Um, so I was the kind of inverted commas senior analyst. He was the junior analyst, and uh, we became great friends, and we always kept in touch. And was it mainly mining stocks? Because Australia was going into a mining boom, especially in those late sixties that well, peaked with the Poseidon boom. It was a whole. It was really the la- the larger companies in the marketplace. So in the industrials would have been CSR and Borrell and who knows what. And the mining side, of course, BHP and and CRA, but it was I can't tell you how many companies we covered, but it was it was quite a lot, so it was an extensive coverage, and you're right, from the end of 1966, uh, really, I mean there were SO discovered oil in Bass Strait, uh, there were the iron ore discoveries in the Pilbara. Uh, Western Mining discovered nickel at Cambalda. So there was a lot going on and... Well, they're nation-building discoveries. Exactly. And at the end of 1966, uh, Ords actually floated consolidated gold fields, which was the first major mining float. And I was lucky enough to get a few shares and made a bit of money and starting from nothing, it was pretty fantastic. It felt pretty good. Yeah. And do you think, this is probably an unfair question, were you a good analyst? Did you take to it naturally? I did take to it. I enjoyed it immensely. And um, it was a fantastic training ground for what I went on to do later. And then you've got to move to London, which is nice, back to Europe, back where it all started from. Did the full circle and while in London you joined Robert Fleming, which we said in the introduction. So you've gone from the sell side to the buy side there. Was that... Yes, was that in the back of your head that that there was, was a, a natural progression? There was a bit of an intervening period. What happened was that in 69, uh, with the mining boom really revving up on the way to Poseidon and so on at the end of 69, uh, I decided that I wanted to go overseas. You know, Luckily, Ords had a London office and they said, well, why don't you become our analyst uh, in London, helping our 
institutional clients there. And so Which I, there would have been a lot, I gather. There was a lot, both around England, London, Scotland. And so I went over and really enjoyed that. And then, of course, there was Poseidon, went from zero to 280, and then eventually back to zero again, of course. <laughs> And the London was just booming for Australia. I mean, they just loved it and the speculation and all that. And there were Tasmanex and you name any amount of companies, uh, you know, most of which were completely speculative. Um, so that's your first real experience of a boom. That was and my you must have learned first a lot in that experience period. of a boom. And then, of course, from 7071, it went downhill, the London orders dried up. <laughs> Board Manette said, well, you better come back to Sydney. And I kind of looked at it and said, well, I don't think there's going to be much going on in Sydney for a while. So I hunted around and spoke to a number of my merchant bank uh, clients in London, and Robert Fleming uh, offered me a job. And then uh, I worked with them in London for a number of years, uh, mainly on a uh, commodity fund, when I say commodity, mining-based, but also other commodities called the Ebor Commodity Trust with a guy called Robin Hall, who was a great mentor for me. And then in 73, there'd been a huge boom in Hong Kong. The index topped it this is the Hang Seng Index, topped at 1,500 and then started falling away after a massive, massive boom. The guy that ran the funds in Hong Kong was going on extended leave. So Robert Fleming said to me, would you like to go out and look after his position while he's away? And I said, yes, indeed, I'd love to go over. So I went over and... Uh, Hong Kong, of course, in those days was a very different place. There were tea houses, back alleyways, you know, millionaires in literally singlets. Uh, and what I discovered was that this guy had lost, this portfolio manager had left what I'd call a lot of half-eaten sandwiches. <laughs> there were... Uh, all sorts, of, <laughs> all sorts of underwritings and things that had failed and they were sub-underwriting and so I, I went into it. And But having seen what happened at the tail end of the Australian boom, I kind of decided, look, these things have just got to be sold. The portfolios have got to be cleaned up. And so I did that. And then, which is a good learning experience in itself. Which was good in, in experience. And that's at the end of it, the Hang Seng Index had fallen from 1,500 to 150. So it wow. had fallen, the index, not a particular stock, but the index had fallen 90%. That must have been the biggest bust. It was an eye-opener. It was. <laughs> and so, again, part of the experience trail, I suppose you could say, and then what happened was that I, I went back to London. I kind of had itchy feet. I was getting a bit sick of the London weather, grey, misly sort of weather and so on. So I said to Fleming's, you know, can I go out to Hong Kong? And they said yes. And so um, 
I went out there and ran Asian funds and the market started to recover. So it was a nice, pretty, good, nice time. pretty good time to go over there. Yep. And then, as you mentioned, um, I'd kept in touch with Chris Corrigan and he called me one day in, uh, I guess it was the middle of 75, and said, um, look, I've got this idea that we can, through active management and performance, uh, really take on what is then, what was then, the investment establishment, which really consisted... In Australia. In Australia, which then consisted of the large life offices, the AMP, National Mutuals and so on, Bank of New South Wales, um, uh, DFC, uh, some... Uh, merchant banks, so Darlings, which became Schroeder's, uh, Ipcale, which I think became Rothschild's. And so I said, look, that sounds like a fantastic opportunity. Uh, were you the first... I sort of love to come back. So you came back and there was only a handful of you, which we'll talk about in a sec, but were, yeah. were you the first kind of independent, if you can call yourselves that, that were outside the mutual game to take them on? Were there any other boutique-like... Managers around? Well, there were the people like the Darlings and uh, so on. So there were a few other merchant bank type people. But I don't know how active they really were. And Mike Crivelli, who was already there in the the Ord BT team, uh, had come over from Darlings. So he was attracted to come to Ord BT as well. Um, so there was the four of you? There was four of us. There was Chris, who was the uh, overall strategist of, of the business uh, and how we were to implement it. Uh, and he was, as well as a wonderful strategist, he was a very hands-on executor of the strategy as well, which is very unusual for those sort of people. So he was the full bottle as such. Uh, There was Rob Ferguson, who'd been there for a few years with Chris running uh, mutually. They they had some small mutual funds and uh, and some private wealth clients. Uh, And then Mike Crivelli came in uh, and Mike is, a, as you possibly know, is a wonderful people person. And so he was the uh, business developer, I guess you could say, and did a lot of the legwork. And Chris's idea, original idea, was to use uh, Bankers Trust's clients in the States. So he and Mike would go and visit those clients and put the idea into their heads that maybe their Australian subsidiaries would want to change the management away from the life offices and so on where they had their superannuation funds uh, towards a more active management style. And um, just on, on that point, how much money did you have when you first landed to manage? When I arrived it in October 75 and went straight to work, we had 30 million. 
uh, and only one superannuation client, a British uh, precious metals uh, refining company called Matthew Garrett. But very quickly, we started to win new mandates. So the active management pitch was working. Were, were the original numbers good also? The original numbers were good, especially from the 74 downturn. So it was good timing again? It was good timing, yeah. And that was, that was basically Chris and Rob. Um, and then we really started persuading clients that the kind of static, what was then called EFG uh, management of the life offices and so on, was uh, you know, redundant and that they really needed to at least split fund, not necessarily give us the whole fund, but to split fund away from those people uh, towards a more active uh, management style and hopefully better performance. And what did your funds look like? Were, were they were they a balanced portfolio where you, you were doing multi-assets or were they specific at that stage where you're doing equities only or fixed interest? How, how did they look at that stage? Uh, the funds were mainly balanced funds, similar in a way to what came over from the life officers, but they were running them statically, whereas we were running them dynamically. Uh, so they were balanced funds, as you would now call multi-asset funds, uh, and our active style was very much in, let's call it, in you know, vogue uh, at that time when the markets were really very volatile. And what, what was your main job to switch between assets, different weightings, between the different asset classes, or were you mainly doing equities at that stage? Well, we did a bit of both. There was only a very small team, but the idea was to switch between assets through your research, uh, identifying those areas which were going to outperform and de-weight uh, let's call it uh, the risky areas which were going to underperform. And did you have to do much selling or did, or did Chris do most of that with Mike? Uh, well, they did a lot of it, but I remember uh, about a week after joining, Chris said to me, I want you to do a presentation for Burma Castrol. And I was terrified, I can tell you. I'd never <laughs> done anything like that. And I had a bit of a stutter as well, which was a bit of an impediment. And uh, I went and did this presentation in North Sydney, I remember. And somehow or other, we won the account. I was like... How easy is this? Elated. <laughs> I was absolutely elated. So that was my introduction to it. And I somehow or other talked myself out of the stutter over a bit of time and will and... Um, I ended up doing a lot of presentations. In fact, all our portfolio managers used to do presentations, whether it was to their then existing clients. And we had, by the 80s, a kind of a blue-chip portfolio of clients. So we'd gone from 30 million when I joined, 100 million in 1977, which was break-even for the business, and by the early 80s, we'd, 
I think, 83, we'd gone through a billion. And that was big money in those days. All institutional money until this stage? Yeah, we'd got rid of the other accounts and were just concentrating on institutional money. Yeah. So Chris put you in charge of Pendle, which was your institutional business in 78, which we mentioned in the intro. Yeah. And through to 83, you must have been, the, the performance must have been quite good and because you started to take apart those those uh, mutuals that we were talking about earlier, those life companies. You were beating them hands down at that stage. Yes, the performance was good. Uh, the For us, in a way, the life officers were like low-hanging fruit, uh, you know, especially for clients to split fund away from them and then see how we went compared to them, and often that meant that then more money came to us anyway. Uh, so we were growing quickly. Growing your team? And we were growing the team. Some of it, in terms of people, wasn't so successful initially, uh, and some people left or, or were let go. And then what we discovered was that really, at a billion or so, we were a large fish in a small Australian pool and it was starting to impair our performance. So we actually closed our doors to new, large new mandates. We still took smaller funds into the pooled fund, but we closed for larger mandates. And then for us, very luckily, uh, Paul Keating deregulated the financial markets, um, particularly the exchange rate, at the end of 83. And that gave us, of course, much more opportunity in international markets uh, where we were a kind of a small fish in a, in a much bigger pool. And so we uh, reconstituted the business to become a global manager and did you have to import a whole bunch of new skills, bring in people to do that? There were a lot of new people came in through that period, uh, 84, 85, 86. Uh, some we poached from other institutions and we also took on quite a few bright new graduates that we trained and uh, uh, that was very successful. It turned into a powerhouse. One of those people who did come into the business, which coincided eventually with you starting a retail component of your business, was Ken Nelson. He turned up from South Africa, yep. um, went on to run the retail business, another highly successful person. must have The culture must have been quite strong there that this was a performance-based culture and Care fed it into that. Is that how you would have seen it? Yes. Um, Care joined us, I think, in 83 or 84. It uh, took quite a while to get him into Australia through the immigration process, uh, but uh, he joined the team and fitted in very well. First of all, on the wholesale business, there, there really wasn't a retail business of much consequence at that stage. And then eventually, I think in about 86 uh, when the retail business uh, was growing, he went across to run the funds in that business. Yeah, and which, which enhanced the uh, brand of BT again. It became known to the, 
the general public at that stage. Yes, I think that's right. Uh, Mike Ravelli was appearing uh, on morning television most mornings a week. Right. Uh, Yeah, I mean, giving market commentary, but effectively spruiking BT. So, yeah, it became a household name. And another person who we should mention, Gillian Broadbent, who who mm. is your wife, she started at BT and another highly successful career. What what was she doing? What was her role in the organisation? Well, she joined BT about a year after I did, and she was the economist, uh, and so she participated in our what we then called uh, investment policy meetings, and a lot of those meetings in those days were held in the cafe uh, below Australia Square where we had our offices and we'd get in there early and have a coffee and a croissant and discuss the markets and... Lively debates. Lively debates and Jilly took part in those. And, um, you know, we do things... I remember in 77 we got wind of the fact that the Australian dollar might be devalued. Mm -hmm. And... uh, so Chris and Rob actually went to Japan and we were able, because we had these individual mandates and we had a pooled fund, we had some scope to do some international investment. And uh, so we bought some Japanese stocks. We were lucky that we got the money out of Australia before the devaluation on the Sunday, as it turned out. And that was obviously a very successful move. And I remember, for instance, at one of these investment policy meetings, I'd done a kind of a, a graphic of, um, of the mining companies, you know, MIM, BHP and so on. And it was looking at their margins and what a 15% uh, adjustment to the currency might mean for those margins. And, of course, it just bolstered them immensely. And so we went quite heavily into those stocks. Yeah, well, another pivotal moment in, in, in the story of BT. Now, what, let's move forward to 87. Um, I, I know you've got a, a, a little slide here that you've pulled out, which you can explain to the viewers leading up. But 87, we should explore in some detail because the, the financial markets and general Australian community even knows that BT pulled off a great coup in 87, given being a big manager. I think you had somewhere between three and four billion of assets at that stage. About four billion, I think, in So you're a big player. We're a big player. So run it through. There was a number of different strategies going, but obviously as the year wore on, because the crash, as we know, was in October, and the Australian market markets around the world were accelerating in that year, can you, can you give us a bit of a feel for what the market was like and how you were feeling and... and and then we can talk about how those that protection will start to be applied to the portfolios. Sure. The um, really, as you got into the mid to late '80s, uh, it was really an era of what I'd call corporate excess, and you had these so-called entrepreneurs, really paper entrepreneurs, takeover raiders, call them what you like, you know, bond. Uh, Holmes Accord, Spalvins, and a myriad of others on their tail. And the economy was strong, the markets were booming, 
and there were all these takeover raids going on to exacerbate that. And it had come on the back of that deregulation in part, what you talked about yes, earlier. Yes, yes, yeah. And so I think in the, for instance, in the year to September 87, the market was up very close to 100%. Now that is serious boom. <laughs> it's going pretty hard. Serious boom and, you know, you would think that People in general would be starting to get a bit cautious, worrying about potential downside, but that wasn't the case. I mean, the markets were just booming. People were just throwing their hats in the air. As you say, there'd been deregulation of the stockbroking industry and so on. It was an amazing period of, you know, boom and buoyancy. And taking out protection, the different ways of doing that, there's, there's futures markets and there's the options to play with as best as you can. Mm. When, when did BT as a group start to increase their protection against a fall in that, it, during that year? Was it mid-year? Yeah. Was it early year? It was actually probably in the second quarter. It was certainly a good six months before October, maybe even more than six months. And that was costing? Uh, it ended up costing a bit, but what we were just concerned that this was a maniacal boom. Uh, you mentioned this slide that I put up. It was about the middle of the year and I was asked to do a presentation. Uh, it was a, actually a, a debate chaired by Charlie Massick uh, at the Securities Institute. And it, in this slide, I looked at what the previous booms had been and they'd been anything between 110 to 170% on the upside and then fell by between 30 and 40% uh, in the bust. Now, the boom from 1983 onwards was, at that stage, the chart showed 300% upside, so more than double the biggest boom before that and I was debating this with a guy actually from Audmanet. He was a bit of a stock spruker there, if I could call it that, who had a very sad ending, actually. Later, he committed suicide. And I was really pointing to the fact that, look, prior booms, busts were between 30 and 40. Well, we're now up 300%. What's this one going to be? So we were very concerned that the markets were overheated, very overheated. And as I mentioned, by the time the market peaked in September, it was up another 50% or so. Did you have any clients saying, what are you doing? Why yes. are you so negative? Yes, we did. We did. So as you mentioned, we put various strategies into play from about the second quarter onwards. And that involved, first of all, cleaning out the portfolios of any second and third line stocks. So we made sure that we only held top quality companies. We employed various options strategies, sometimes buying call options and holding a low percentage of physical stock. And at other times, and as it turns out, the way that we went into the uh, October crash, uh, we had a relatively higher percentage of physical stocks, but we offset that from uh, by 
uh, buying put options and also uh, you know selling futures against uh, you know the physical holdings. And was that a coordinated effort, or were people in various arms of BT doing different strategies? Really, it was uh, Ross Finley who was in charge of Australian assets, was in charge of it in the sense of implementing it, and he had a, a very bright quantitative analyst, uh, uh, Vasant Kalani, who uh, really priced the options. And um, Care, who was then in the, res- in the uh, retail side, he came on board late, mm-hmm. but he did come on board with the strategy. And so when we actually went into the crash, we had quite a deal of, of protection. Mm. And a couple of questions out of that. First of all, I'll get you to tell the story about being in New York. But did, did you, were you surprised at how it did unfold, that 87 crash that shocked everyone? That, that one day in particular. Was that a, even a shock to BT? Yes. I mean, you don't expect uh, the New York market to fall by 20% in one day, which it did, and then the next day our market followed similarly. No, it, 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 was, it was a shock. I mean, but we had been looking for a downturn I mean, you never know how big it's going to be. And, of course, in Australia, as opposed to New York, uh, the you know, US market stabilised fairly uh, quickly. Our market continued to fall and was down by 50% at the trough. So it had fallen from 2,400 on the All Ordinaries to 1,200 by the time the bottom came six months or more later. Uh, it was a lot more damaging here. So it was a lot more damaging. We'd had a bigger boom and it was more damaging when the bus came. And just those couple of weeks leading up, there's a story of you being in New York, seeing various strategists and different players in the market there and you're getting progressively nervous. Is that you know, the validity of that story and you were, you were taking more protection in pay phones as you went from meeting to meeting? Can you recall that? Yes, I do. I mean... In the lead-up, I mean, from about September onwards, the bond markets were acting very erratically and yields were moving up and currencies were wanging around and there was a, for us at least, uh, there was a bit of a feeling of, of dread, uh, to put it that way. And I happened to be on one of my regular visits to New York which probably did about three times a year, and talking to people on the street and, uh, you know, leading strategists like Cooperman and Biggs and so on. And uh, as we went around the traps, we felt there was a great complacency there and they didn't seem to be at all really worried about what was happening in the bond markets and so on. And so we'd often, Mark, Mark Burgess, who was our point man in New York at that stage, and myself were going around and we'd come out of these meetings and quite often we'd say, we've got to sell more S&P 500 futures. So we'd come out, we'd look for nickels and dimes, 
put them in the payphone, phone up one of the brokers. Uh, it was a guy called James Thresher, I think, used to do our futures at Prue Beish, and and sell a considerable amount more futures against the portfolio. And then I remember I flew back Thursday night. Back to Sydney? Out of New York. So I arrived Saturday morning crossing the uh, time band and there was a uh, custom credit tennis tournament on at the Entertainment Centre and Jolly myself had been invited. And it was kind of unreal because the champagne corks were popping. Everybody was incredibly exuberant, as, as you would be. Market's gone up 100% in a year. The brokers were just, you know, and... You couldn't spend enough money. <laughs> and, and I was kind of looking at this a bit, oh, what's going on? And then, of course, Monday in, in Australia, Tuesday, and the whole thing just went belly up. Yeah. yeah, and that that was really probably the icing on the cake for BT, being a great company. It became legendary at that stage. It, it would have been interesting in the wash-up post the crash, given the carnage that had happened. There would, yeah. there would have been a lot of um, anxiety, I suppose, around counterparty risk and things like that. Yeah, there was. I mean, from a client viewpoint, we'd gone through a bit of a tough time, you know, from about the middle of the year, and... A lot of, there were some what I'd call pretty racy asset consultants around in those days and they were recommending to clients to move away from BT. We were seen as being kind of stodgy and underperforming at that stage. Like the old mutuals. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> to, to the racier performance managers. And I think in the, like the year to October or September, we'd done about 40% in our balance funds which is pretty good under normal circumstances. But some of these racy little guys, and they, some of them hardly had any funds under management, you know, so they were scrambling around in all sorts of speculative stocks. They were up like uh, 60 or 80%. And so I remember one of our clients, quite a major fund down in Melbourne, summoned uh, me to come down to talk through our strategy and, you know, they were obviously considering going elsewhere for at least part of the fund. And so Mike came down with me and we went into this meeting and it turned out that the asset consultant was there, which they actually told us he he wasn't going to be there, but it doesn't matter. And I remember I was espousing why we felt that Markets were overheated and we should be taking protective action. As a result of that, we were underperforming the racier end of the market. And I remember this guy was leaning over the table and I actually thought he was going to job me. (laughs) Anyway, we escaped from there. They said they'd make a decision, let us know the next morning. And we talked them around enough so they couldn't make a decision. So they held us as such. And, of course, within a month or more, uh, the truth came out and um, the markets had crashed. Good decision. So they were, they were amazingly 
happy. Yeah, happy, yeah. <laughs> if they hadn't moved. And, and so that set BT up for a great run in terms of brand and and um, and just knowledge and and the fact that a lot of uh, competitors had fallen by the wayside over that with the carnage. The next decade was very good for the company. Yeah, it, it, it was. I mean, we did well in the couple of years after... 87 uh, against the peer group or whatever. Uh, the early 90s, uh, there was a definite performance lag, uh, but the money had flowed in. Uh, the retail side of the business was really taking off. Um, and so that stood us in a lot of good stead for a considerable period of time. And 94, just to round out that bit, 94 was, was an interesting period. It mm. was with the bond market collapsed. Yes. Greenspan moved rates in the, I think in the February, early February. It shocked everyone and the bond market sold off and rates went up a bit like the last year or so. Yes. Um, how did you guys handle that? Because obviously you're, you're doing multi-assets at that stage. And so um, fixed interest was a big part of what you were doing. Yep. Uh, yes, you're right. Rates in the US went from three to six very quickly. Bond markets were very disrupted. Um, our uh, you know ten year bond yield from uh, from memory went to about ten and a half percent. A lot of people that we respected around the market uh, were saying bond yields were going higher, up to say twelve. But we looked at it very uh, carefully and against inflation as it stood then and against the downside risk in, in bonds. So you had a 10.5% running yield. It really cushioned you against a reasonable further up move in bond yields. And so we felt the risk-reward ratio had moved very much in our favour at 10.5. So you went longer bonds. And we went long bonds, yeah. Mm -hmm. And that was, um, yeah, that proved to be a very good decision, as it turned out. Another decisive move. What I'd like to do now is come to the end. We talked about principal and, and the demise of BT and then the sale to principal. Um, and that's when you left the business, just just as we turned into the new century around 2000, mm. about there. I, I'd be interested to know, do you still follow markets? And it, it's also interesting because we've had our first bout of inflation recently, which we hadn't seen much of over the last 20, mm. 25 years. Do you follow the markets and have you got a view now with the way the world's unfolding and the way you know, funds management is evolving? Yes, um, I so do follow the markets pretty carefully uh, and I invest myself. You're right, inflation has become much more of a bugbear. First time in a long time. The central banks have uh, acted, so we've gone from what were emergency levels of rates at around zero to, let's call it, five in the US, four and something here in Australia. Uh, bond yields have obviously moved up at initially crimped asset values. Now we've got this 
interplay, I guess you could say, between higher rates and you know, recession uh, potentially. And I guess you have to take a view as to whether uh, you're going to have a soft landing. And the markets are basically pricing for a soft landing. Do you agree with that? I'm ambivalent, I'd say. So the markets are pricing for a soft landing. So if you do get a soft landing, you will get somewhat of an up move in asset prices. But it'd be relatively limited because you're not coming off a low base. I mean, when you look at equity markets, they're very close to peaks of, you know, you know previous peaks. Our markets, in terms of valuations or, uh, or just In your terms price, of absolute, absolute values. In yep. term, you know, you look at the S&P 500, NASDAQ, whatever you like, our market's largely been going sideways, but not that far below the highs really. And so I guess my inclination is to say, well, look, limited upside, if you do have a soft landing, yeah, you've got some upside, but limited upside. But if you have the other side of it, a hard landing and recession, then you're going to have a significant uh, you know, downward draft. And so my inclination is to be neutral to negative, if you think about it in assets, in, you know, you know, risk assets. And longer term, are you quite optimistic or you think we've got a ways to go and you should just play it year by year? I think if you think about the eras that we've been through, you went through the bountiful 60s, then the very volatile 70s and 80s with uh, higher inflation and... Uh, you know, large disparities between asset classes. You then went into the 90s where asset allocation, in a sense, was was sidelined through the mid-90s because of lower inflation and largely trending markets rather than volatility between markets. Uh, And now you've gone through a long period of very low interest rates where you know, passive strategies, specialist strategies and so on, you know, came into vogue and were right for the time. But now you may well have gone into a different era again where you're going to have maybe persistently higher inflation. One of the reasons for low inflation in the last 20 years was really globalisation and much lower costs as a result of that. Uh, well, now, of course, we're deglobalizing, uh, we're reshoring or whatever. We're going to have higher costs. Uh, and, of course, wages are going up for the first time in a long time to catch up to the inflation. Uh, and then we've got climate change as well, and that's obviously going to impose higher costs. And so maybe structurally now we're again into at least a somewhat higher inflationary era but we'll have to wait and see people say and maybe this is right that ai is going to solve all that and that it's going to produce well you're going to get much higher productivity out of that uh, but i think we'll have to wait and see how that evolves it's interesting you talk about productivity there we've had an era of low interest rates but we've had an era of very low productivity growth especially in australia 
it might actually change where higher interest rates, but we might get some productivity growth. It'll be interesting to see how that plays mm. out because it's the missing link for a, well, a lot of the economists. And mm, well, I think that's got partly to do with the fact that, I mean, we went through a wonderful era in the 80s when there was deregulation and lots of very good productivity enhancements that came out of all of that. That was really the kind of Keating era and then the early part of the Howard era. But really, since then, uh, there hasn't been any productivity enhancement. I mean, governments have just sat on their bottoms, basically. There's been very little in the way of, of new, uh, what I'd call good policy initiatives. And so productivity has lagged. And part of that is probably also going from a goods economy to a services economy where you obviously need more labour and it's difficult to actually get productivity enhancements. But maybe AI starts to solve some of that. Where it helps the service economy along. Yeah. Yeah, and we can get that productivity back. That would be a great outcome mm. if we could. Given that backdrop you've outlined, Olive, the question we always like to ask is, where are you investing your money today, your personal money? Well, I'll, I'll give a little bit of background just going back over the last couple of years so you can, uh, so you can get that in context. But um, if we look back, for instance, to the pandemic in 2020, uh, I was quite liquid going into that. And then when the market here in Australia, fell top to bottom by, I think, about 38%. I started looking at it carefully and thinking about it and said, well, that means that 38 other things being equal, that means that 38% has been wiped off all the future earnings of the stock market into, the, into infinity, call it. And I said to myself, that's a big ask. And then you started to see some stimulation come into play, Reserve Bank dropping rates big time, for instance. And so I bought quite a portfolio of stocks. Australian stocks or global? Uh, really, mainly Australia. Mainly Australia. Because I really don't have my own coverage. So compared to, say, a, a CARE who follows international stocks, I was mainly into Australian stocks. And then progressively, as the market recovered, I started selling some of those out. I mean, I mentioned one very quickly. Transurban went from 10 or 11 to 15 in literally a month or two. And so I just said, exit. I'll take that. Exactly. <laughs> and then things rolled on to 2021 and the economy had recovered. Inflation was starting to rise. Some people were saying, well, it's just transitory, but it was rising. And you still had rates at basically zero. And so my sense said, look, the central banks have got to start acting here because these emergency levels don't uh, you know, equate anymore. And so, literally, I sold just about everything. Uh, went, went to cash? Went very much into cash. 
And since then, I've had a couple of small forays uh, into what I call Goldilocks events and uh, did something in an EFT called Fang when the, the uh, uh, you know, when the AI thing was, was coming into vogue. Um, but at the moment, i am still got a lot of cash. Of course, now cash is yielding, you can get 5% on a deposit. Now, that was basically zero or one percent or something you know two years ago um and taking no risk and and you're taking no risk and you can buy bank sub bonds at probably six six and a half you can buy uh, hybrids yielding in the sevens uh i think there's plenty of things you can do with your money without necessarily taking a lot of equity risk uh, now, that's not to say that one shouldn't be invested in equities either, and I still have got a, a smaller portfolio of equities. But there are many more choices that we've now got rather than what was available two, three years ago. And just to adjunct to that, what would take you back into the equity market? A major sell-off, a drop in interest rates? What would trigger that? What do you look for? Yeah, I think all of that, uh, you would need to see interest rates come back significantly. Uh, or a major sell-off, as I say, if markets are down 15 20%, I think you'd start re-examining. Markets always give you opportunities if you're prepared to keep your bottle. And if you've got the cash on hand. Well, I know you've got to play golf. <laughs> you've got golf this afternoon. Um, want to say thanks for coming in. BT um, is a great part of Australian corporate history and funds management. It's a terrific story. And you were there from the start, so congratulations. Um, thanks very much for coming in and telling us that the story. We've learned a lot about Australian corporate history. Thank you. Thanks, Matthew, and hopefully it sort of does give some learnings to people. No doubt. <laughs>